Welcome to Open-Minded Healing, where the topic is alternative health. We will be having conversations with the practitioners that offer a variety of alternative healing modalities, as well as everyday people who have recovered their health outside of the MD's office. Join us with an open mind for conversations that may provide solutions to healing your own body on a mental, physical, and spiritual level. I'm Marla Miller. Let's begin. Welcome to Open-Minded Healing. Today, my guest, Randy Oster, is going to be sharing how you can navigate the healthcare system. So when you're in a state of crisis, you're not scrambling and trying to figure out what's the best for you or a loved one, but you'll know certain steps you can take and learn through her stories. Welcome, Randy. Oh, I'm so happy to be here and I'm looking forward to sharing some tips, some tools and some tricks that your listeners can implement immediately. So how did you get into the healthcare arena and have such a passion for this topic in the first place? So I I think I'm like most people. We live our lives, we're doing our jobs, we're with our families, we're trying to keep everything together, and then a health crisis happens. And sometimes we don't even know it's a health crisis, it's a health situation. And in my case, it was my son who was having some issues. We didn't know quite what it was, but he was playing tennis and then he would have a seizure. And after five of them in a six-week period as he's playing tennis, he was hypoglycemic. What started me on this process a little bit was every time he was taken to the emergency room, the protocol of what they would do was the same. They would give him a CAT scan and the CAT scan would show nothing. Okay. So by the third time, I knew CAT scan shows nothing, lots of radiation. Yeah. And I started to understand how to say no. But I will share that my son ended up through a diagnosis of Crohn's disease. He ends up in the hospital. And the difference between me and everyone else who typically ends up on what I call the protocol train, where you end up in this, who are all these people? What do they want? I don't even speak this language, is my background. I am uh, an electrical engineer. I started in aerospace. I moved up in the ranks in aerospace to lead very complex and complicated programs, including having a top secret clearance. The actual clearance is still classified, but I led the team to design the electronic combat system for the stealth fighter. This is many decades ago. However, what did I get out of that? Complexity and egos don't scare me. So when I ended up in the hospital with my teenager and I started to see some of the processes and some of the protocols, I had the strength to understand a little bit about safety because we used to keep the planes up in the sky and to see a gap. And that's what started me on this journey. The understanding that sometimes we end up in a place we don't want to be, but we can take our past, our experiences and pull it together to move our families forward, our communities forward, and each other forward. And that's why I'm excited about talking to you today. Well, that's amazing. Your background is pretty incredible to think that you not only will you worked on something like that, but also, like you said, it gave you a grasp of different types of terms and knowledge and also the ability to see a problem and see where there's a gap yes, and start zeroing in on that and finding a solution or an answer. Yes. That's perfect for navigating the world of healthcare. (laughs) Yes. Yes. And giving myself a voice. And I will share with you one tip that I'd like the listeners to use that I use that starts me on this journey. I'll start it by saying that My father was in the hospital, diagnosed with a glioblastoma. At the time, I'm on the phone with my manager, who I was like, oh my goodness, what do I do? And it's management 101. Don't be afraid to ask the hard questions, Mm. right? So let's take a moment to understand the power of this. Don't be afraid to ask the hard questions. My father's in the hospital. 
he has a glioblastoma, which is a form of cancer. It's a tumor. And like many people, what is that? I, I don't understand. But interesting enough, they had already the next day, a surgeon coming in to do brain surgery. My oh father, we had just gotten out of, you know, he was in the ER, they get in the room, and all he's saying is, I want non-invasive. Brain surgery's invasive. And so what's the hard question? This is my father. The hard question, and just to set the scene, here's what you don't know in the hospital. When is the doctor coming? I, I didn't even recognize what a nurse was, what a CNA was. I've never seen anything like this, but we're supposed to sit there all day and just wait for when they're going to show up. And I do this, and all of us have been through this crisis where we have lives, right? The doctor comes in. And he lets us know that he has scheduled the surgery for seven o'clock in the morning. And I pull him out of the room because I didn't want my father to hear the hard question. There's no place to sit. I'm literally up against a wall. And I remember holding myself with my two hands against the wall. And here comes the question. How long will he live with surgery? How long will he live without surgery? That's my father. That's a hard question. And here's what I want everyone to know. They know the answers. So here's what happens. The doctor, he goes, without surgery, he will live eight weeks. With surgery, he will live eight months. And then I get the fine print. Because it's brain surgery, he might not be able to see, he might not be able to speak, and he's going to need radiation, and he's going to have to start chemo, blah, 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 blah. And now I have the data. This is important. The hard question gives you the data to make a choice. And in this case, eight weeks, eight months, eight months of pain, torture, going Mm -hmm. for all this stuff. Eight weeks, he was going to, I guess, fall asleep, right? So my father chose what he wanted, which was non-invasive and had a beautiful end of life. That story's in my book, Questioning Protocol. And I share that because it set the tone for empowerment. And I want to share that this is hard stuff. You and I are not talking about where should we go on vacation or what house should we buy. This is the hard stuff, our loved ones. And it's okay to ask those hard questions. Yeah, I think it is so much better, even at such a painful time to have all the information you can get to make your own choices, not just have it dictated by a typical protocol, but to be able to have the information process it a little bit and then share it with your dad and see what that person actually wants. Some people may just think eight weeks versus eight months. Yes, I want to hold on to them as long as I can. And they would live longer. But like you said, when you really look at those details and that they're in pain that whole time, and going through such a struggle, and it's not what they even wanted, that's a whole different story. It's great that you pulled them out of the room to get the information first, and then deliver in your own way, not in a doctor's tone to your dad and see what he wanted to do and really listen to him. And a couple of things that you just said that I want to emphasize, what I experienced in the hospital was what I now call the hope factor. And I know that your listeners are going, oh yeah, I've seen that. They, they give you hope. Okay. Mm -hmm. And I'm not against hope, but you have to look at what does that entail, that hope to live, right? So when they're giving you hope and you feel the hope, first of all, I want you to know hope means get help, over communicate, just like I did with my father, over communicate, say, here's what you can have eight weeks, eight months, right? Explain it. Be persistent because sometimes you, don't get all the information you want from that person and just engage as many people as you can. If you notice, hope is help over communicate, persistence and engage Mm. and let yourself find people that can support you as well. When I say engage, engage your network because this is scary times. When my father chose not to have the surgery, It felt like he was thrown out of the hospital. They said, there's nothing we can do for you. Mm -hmm. And we as a family weren't prepared. We didn't know. But I will also share 
that they also made me feel like I wasn't doing everything for him, that I didn't love him. So the next day when I went to pick him up from the hospital, because now there was nothing that they could do, a resident came by and he said, you know, I spent the night talking with your father and he was an amazing man. He was in World War II. He really is part of the greatest generation. And I want you to know something, Randy. He made the right decision. That surgeon that was going to do the surgery today, and this was back in 2001, would have made $15,000 from the surgery. And the aftercare was like $3,000 a day. And so we all will make the right decisions for ourselves. And for some people, surgery could have been the right decision, but it took a lot of courage to understand what the hope factor was, to understand that my father made a choice that he knew he lived a beautiful life. And I will share with you, he had a beautiful end of life in our home where he was cognitive. And four days before he died, I was working in corporate America and he saw how crazy I was because I was working by the phone as his cot was in the room. And he said, come over here. And I said, what? He says, write this down. And I said, what? And he said, your job is not your life. And then I wrote it down and he said, give me the piece of paper. And I gave him the piece of paper and I saw him sign his name, Eugene Victor Redmond. And I could also tell that the tumor had started. It was very scratchy. And I hold that piece of paper with me to this day. And it is one of the reasons I had the confidence when my son got sick years later to know that what my current work was, was not my life and that I had a mission. I would hold on to that for sure for life, frame it, do something with it. That's, <laughs> yes. What an incredible story. So just know that for hope, get help, over communicate, be persistent, and then engage. And then you really have hope. I like that, how you compare those letters to those words. I think that's right for sure. And like you said, engage as many people, not only in the medical community, but also engage your community, engage your neighbors, your friends, your family, and get that rallying support behind you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So your son, let's talk about that journey when he went into the hospital and they're requesting a third CAT scan. What happens from that point forward? So what starts to happen is you start to see some processes that are used. And in my son's case, he eventually ended up diagnosed with Crohn's disease. He ends up in the hospital. And in the hospital, we're sort of being told what to do. And at one point, I'll never forget this, the doctor came in and he said, look, the medicine that your son was on is no longer working. And then what he does is he says, and so we think there's this other medicine. And he hands me a stapled piece of paper. It must have had five sheets on it. I still remember, I think it was green. And it was for medicine that all I, I couldn't even pronounce the name, but in the middle of the first page in bold, it said, possible chance of lymphoma. And I'm looking at this and I'm thinking, he's 15 years old. And now you're going to tell me he needs to take some medicine that can cause cancer? Like, isn't there something else we can do? And yeah. here's my second tip to the listeners. I learned to ask why. Why would we do this? Mm -hmm. And then I learned to say no. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So second tip, ask why, say no. Okay. If you're not comfortable, like don't always say no. But the point was when I started to understand that this medicine was really not going to cure his symptoms, right? But it was just going to continue on till whatever next happened. I was like, I think we got to come up with another approach here. And here's what I learned when you ask why and say no, they have a plan B. 
This yeah. is important. If I had said yes to the first thing, mm-hmm. I wouldn't have known about plan B. And when I talk about empowering, what's so important for the people listening today, you might choose that the plan A was the best plan and that's okay. But it's also okay to say, why are we doing this? This doesn't work. And then what else? And that becomes a rallying cry that I learned to empower myself. Yeah, that is such an important question to ask. Why are we doing it? Not just whatever they say you just do. That definitely was the way years back where you just listen to them as the authority figure. But those times are gone. And there are so many possible solutions out there these days in particular that it pays to learn what they all are. And there are a lot of bright doctors out there who are empathetic and who have good answers for sure. There are also doctors out there who either they run out of answers, they don't know what's wrong. So they say, all right, we'll see you later. They don't admit that they don't know. So they say nothing's wrong or maybe it's in your head. And they're challenged. And this is important. And I know your listeners know this, but uh, typically an appointment is scheduled for about 15 minutes. It's rare that people are sitting there having long conversations. And so there's a lot of pressure for the doctors to get us all through. And I'll share with you, even when my son was told to take this particular medicine, that was a 15 minute appointment. I'm like, you know, he's going to start a protocol for the rest of his life that on page one, it says may cause cancer and I get 15 minutes. Okay. So there's a lot of stress and pressure. And that doesn't mean that just because you're scheduled for your 15 minutes, you have to go in now. Let, let's back up here. Here's what I did well. It's a very emotional time. I wanted a hug. I wanted support. Mm-hmm. Okay. The doctor is there to provide medical advice, right? So when I'm in my 15 minutes, I better be very specific and understand the scope of what we're trying to do there versus wanting the hug from that doctor. You might find someone who can do it, but go in prepared. Go in saying, I understand here are some options. I did this with the Crohn's disease. There was a nutritional approach and I brought it up. I think that things have evolved since my son, this was over a decade ago, and I'm hoping that there's more knowledge now on nutrition, but I felt like I was laughed at. I felt like I was laughed at. I will share that my son has used a nutritional approach for the last 15 years, knock wood, and he's been in remission with the Crohn's, but that took me speaking up. And so when you're going into the doctor, go in prepared, sometimes you'll get a pushback saying, Dr. Google, you Google all this information, you go in and he goes, listen, I went to medical school. I don't know who Dr. Google is, right? And you have to say, can you at least address this website or or something and get a sense, are they working with you, right? That's so important, all of what you're saying. And when I went to the doctor, the rheumatologist, I went to three of them, but I would say two of them were strict protocol of prednisone, methotrexate, and maybe Humira. The third one was much more open to other possibilities. And he also talked about diet and stress levels, which are big factors in any autoimmune disease. He was also willing to work with the rheumatologist who was in network with my insurance because I paid him out of network. But he was willing to come up with a protocol and then talk to her about it. And then she would implement a protocol. If the doctor is not working for you, that's another thing. You can switch doctors. Mm -hmm. And I think you should. If you are not feeling like they're listening to you or they're talking over you or they only have one solution that you don't think is working for whatever reason for you, you have the power to change your mind about who you see. And it's hard. Because the listeners know you're not feeling well. You're not on the top of your game. 
in my case, I was helping my son, you know, we're helping our loved ones, but there's a whole lot of dynamics between that as well. At one point, and it's in the book, Questioning Protocol, I was getting a little cocky learning to ask why, say no. And they wanted to do emergency surgery. And now I've come up with that. I think it's because there's some rice stuck in his intestine. So I had them do this before they did the surgeries, this other procedure. Now, what I was learning was I spoke up enough that they were listening to me but I was wrong. So I ended up putting my son through a procedure that he didn't really need. And so my point here is you have to have confidence. You have to have that dialogue. And there is a level of trust, right? But trust because it's been earned, not trust because there's a degree on the wall. Yeah. And that's important. Very good point. You need to build trust with the person who's making these major decisions for you or a loved one. Right, right. Yeah, and they have to earn that trust. I want to just also talk a little bit about my other tip, which is even when the choices are between bad and worse, know you did your best. This is health. In some cases, it's life and death. In some cases, it's chronic the rest of your life. And this doesn't mean that it's all going to end up unicorns and rainbows at the end. We have to learn how to live with our diagnosis. And therefore, even when the choices are between bad and worse, know you did your best because we can't move forward in our own lives always with that suffering. We have to say, my circumstance is what my circumstance is. I wish it wasn't, but I still deserve joy in my day. I want to make sure we take a moment to empower ourselves with that as well. Yeah. You don't want to get stuck in a loop of blaming and spiraling downward. That doesn't help you or anyone else. And that is whether it's directed at your doctor or yourself, like you don't want to get caught in that loop. You just want to find out the information, not go in with an attitude about they're going to let me down. They don't have my best interest at heart. If you go in with a neutral mindset that allows you to understand that there are certain protocols in place, but you can question them and you can change them and not agree with them. I just want information so I can make choices for myself. I want to build on what you're saying here. Okay, so my father taught me this technique and I used it with my son in the hospital and we called it the crap list. Okay, what's the crap list? So what happens is you get into the hospital and a couple of things you discover is time is irrelevant. The only time time is important is when you're really in the crisis. So what I learned was not to get frustrated that everything was taking so much time Because I realized that if it was a crisis, that was when they were on their game. So if something takes an hour or two hours, that's sort of meditative time. Like we could play cards, we could relax, right? So I had to flip because you can spend your time in the waiting room, in the hospital room, getting upset because why is it taking so much time? And here goes with the crap list. So my father taught me, they come in. Someone's cleaning the room, someone's bringing you foods, the nurses coming in, the beeping machines are constantly going, right? Because you're on medication and you can get really frustrated with everyone. This is what the crap list is. When they come in, you say, oh, what's your name? They tell you their name. What's your job? I deliver food. I'm the transporter. I'm the nurse. I'm the CNA. I'm the doctor. And then what you say is, you know what, when we're done, I'm going to keep track of everyone who does a really good job, and I'm going to write a thank you note to the CEO. Now, it's called the crap list because no one wants to get a crappy review. (laughs) Uh (laughs) And the exact opposite happens because we would keep the list right there in the front They started to know it. They started to notice how many stars they were getting and everyone wanted to perform really well. And I'll share with you with my son, after he got out of the hospital, 
I took the list and I did write the thank you letter to the CEO. And I did not know at the time he was going to be back in three weeks later Mm. with complications from the surgery. And I didn't know that there was another child in the hospital at the same time with the same surgeon, with the same exact complication within a three-week period. Oh. Okay. But I had already written my thank you note. And when my son came back, they all remembered that they got recognition. Mm. And we were already, this is important, building our team. And so- to get back to your earlier point where you can get frustrated and you can start to blame, all those negative emotions are taking energy out of you and your loved one from helping them heal. And so the flipping to acknowledging positiveness is literally a light that starts to shine that lets everyone bring that positiveness in. And so even though it's a very tough time, Helping people show you their best delivers their best. I think that's such an amazing technique to help recruit more positive energy for, like you said, for your loved one. Instead of becoming very negative and irritated, and then they become more irritated and handle him with less care, even unknowingly, when you're just in an irritated mood. You have found such a subtle way to turn that around. I think that's awesome. Yeah. And that's why we're sharing it. And I hope that that helps. And I'm summarizing a lot. What I did in the book at the end of every chapter, there's what you can do now. So you literally go through the journey and then you see all these techniques. So like the crap list, all of this is in here and we won't get through all I've never even counted up how many things I have at the end of each chapter, but they are there to help. I wanted to know when you were in the hospital, can you share a little bit more about your son's journey, about what you learned dealing with Crohn's and how you bucked the protocol in a helpful way for your son? So so my son ended up having surgery for his Crohn's disease. The second surgery was within three weeks. And it turned out it was a complication from the first surgery. And that's where I decided to write the book because I said, oh my goodness. And let me explain. In aerospace, to keep the planes up, we have a measurement and it's called Six Sigma, which allows for four defects, which is actually 3.6 defects per every million occurrences. All right. So my background said, okay, mistakes happen. And in aerospace, to keep the planes flying, it's 3.6 defects per a million occurrences. Now I'm back in the hospital within three weeks, my son's back. And then there's this other young boy, he's back. That's two defects within three weeks. And I'm going, there wasn't a million occurrences. That failure rate is so high. This is unacceptable. All right. And so that elevated me to go, whoo, we got to fix something here. So my son, though, did decide not to do the medication and to do a nutritional approach. And in his case, the nutritional approach is very difficult, where for two months out of the year, so for a period of four weeks, he would eat no food. He would only take, it was called enteral therapy enteral therapy, where he puts a feeding tube up through his nose. He can put it into his stomach. He feeds himself, I think, two or 3,000 calories a night of this liquid and then doesn't even eat a Tic Tac during the day. This is tough stuff. How many So he does that how often at a time? So for a solid month, at the age of 15, he got out of the hospital and then he did not eat food for a month. He would put the feeding tube up his nose. They taught him how to do it. It would go into his stomach. He had the the liquid. He'd feed himself through the night and not even eat cake at a birthday party. I mean, this is a 15-year-old. And he would do that for twice a year. Um, Eventually, he was able to do it for three weeks. There's a huge difference between not eating for four weeks and three weeks, right? It's very hard. I remember when he was younger. 
And at the third week, going into the fourth week, I'd see him looking at magazines and newspapers and boys that age might be wanting to look at Playboy. My kid was looking at pieces of meat. Like, yeah, you know, <laughs> <laughs> he was he was looking at cookbooks you know, when they were making posts. <laughs> but it's hard. But he did it. And he did that for over a decade. I mean, he's now 29. He's a man. And he kept at it. And he's now at a point, and again, I'm knocking wood, where he hasn't done it for a couple of years, but he's learned what to eat and what not to eat. And it's working for him. That's a huge shift than being the 15-year-old that was going to be put on to some other medication a huge shift. And so the message is when he chose to do this, it's called entral therapy. There are studies, you can look it up. It was more in Europe than it was in here. But the doctor said, we'll give it a try. And that's when you know you have the right doctor. They trained him to learn how to put the the tube up his nose because he does it at home. The nurse taught him how to do it. He does it. And it worked. First of all, for a young kid to decide to do that, you know, they're in a lot of pain to make that big of a jump to want to put a tube down your nose yourself and feed yourself that way and not eat and to just survive on liquid liquid for those four weeks at a time. That just goes to show, especially with Crohn's, the extent of the pain of that disease. Yes. So to come to where he is at today, I think that's amazing. You know, he no longer has to do that with the tube and he's able to eat some things and he just recognizes what to eat. Mm -hmm. So was his surgery, was it to remove intestine? Yes, he lost, I think, seven inches of intestine at the time. And there were fistulas and anyone who has this is familiar with these terms. Yeah. I'm glad he was able to heal his gut from that because... I know it just continues down that road. Like every 10 to 15 years, people get a test removed until at the very end, you're down to using a colostomy bag. So I do want to bring up, there was another point when you were in the hospital with your son where they wanted to do something and you're like, isn't there another way? And it was when they wanted to figure out if the tube went down to his stomach, if it was placed correctly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what happens is, There's a lack of data that gets transferred from doctor to doctor, hospital to hospital. And so they're forever repeating everything, right? The communication is not what we would expect. There's not a lot of data sharing. And so my son was in one hospital in an emergency room. They had put a a tube up his nose into his mouth Then he had to be transferred to another emergency room that was an hour and a half away because this was when it was his second surgery and he was in such pain. And we get to this other place and then we have to take an x-ray to determine that that was placed correctly. And my son had so many x-rays and so many CAT scans I'm like, there has to be another way. There has to be another way. We have to do it this way. And there was a nurse. I, I believe it was a nurse, a young person who knew how to test what was coming out of whatever this tube was. And she said, you know, she took litmus paper and she said, I've just finished this course in nursing school. And if it was the acidic something in the stomach. And if it comes out red on the litmus paper, then I know the pH level is high, then it's clearly placed correctly. All right, let's get this straight. Testing what's actually coming out of the tube with a piece of litmus is a lot easier than taking him for another x-ray. And guess what? She ran off and it was her own litmus paper, I think. I think that was part of the, she tested it, right? She, it came out red, okay. And then when the doctor came back, I said, can you explain to me if it wasn't coming out of his stomach with this high acidity, why is this? Re- oh, yeah. And then this is part of the story was, then they decided he didn't even need the tube and they just took the whole thing out. And, and I'm like, 
if I hadn't spoken up at that moment, okay, just start to understand this. He would have had another x-ray to confirm what she was able to do. It is not our jobs as patients, as loved ones, as advocates to have to do this. Oh my freaking goodness. And I'm hoping that since I've written the book, there've been changes. I'm hoping some of this has changed, but the point in sharing this story was common sense. Common sense said, why are we doing this? Say no. And again, engage, right? I engaged the nursing student (laughs) and she had the idea and it worked. Those nurses can be very helpful for sure and knowledgeable. So I'm hoping that when you're getting to know your nurses, that they're on your crap list with five stars because they will share with you information. And so the nurses can really be helpful, but they're also stressed and they don't have time. And if you're battling them, you're not building the light for yourself and building that network. So let everyone else be annoyed, but go in there saying, how do I build the strongest team for my loved one and my family? Yeah, that's a very good mindset to have when you enter the hospital. How can I build my team and then build them up (laughs) so they help me? Mm -hmm. So your son ended up finding his way and something that worked for him. But then you continued, because of all this experience, you continued to want to help people. So do you want to get into that, what you've gone on to do since then? Sure. So what ended up happening is I wrote the book. I thought I was going to be helping other consumers, other people. And the book was really picked up by hospitals because they were reading the book going, oh, we have to change some of the way we're doing things, right? And that was another goal. And I'll just share one of the places that started to come to me as I started on my journey and I was doing the tour and speaking is I landed at several national organizations. And I'll just specifically talk about one. I want to talk about the FDA. So the FDA approves the drugs, and many people have heard that there's an expert panel who reviews data, and then that data then determines the labeling. And so I am the consumer representative for pediatric drug approvals at the FDA. So the message is these journeys can be very difficult, but we are learning, and You'll be surprised how you can connect at levels you never expected. And the reason I want to talk a little bit about this is because I learned a lot about, we talked today about drugs, right? And how do we know what drugs are good, what drugs aren't good, what's happening with the drugs? How do we even know what hospitals are good, what hospitals are bad, what hospitals I should go to? And I just want to share three websites or three places that everyone can go to, to get the data they need to make informed choices. And the first one I'm going to talk about is called Hospital Compare. Okay, so you could just Google Hospital Compare at Medicare.gov. And I'm just going to verbally walk through what that is. So how do you know what hospital to go to? How do you know if other people have been happy at the hospital? Guess what? Medicare.gov, Hospital Compare, you go to the website, they ask for your zip code, and it starts to show you all the hospitals in your area. And then you can pick three hospitals and you can compare. And let me just tell you what you can compare. They have star ratings, so you can see which ones have the highest star ratings. But then they also will share the patient experience data. Okay, what's patient experience data? When you leave the hospital and you get those satisfaction surveys, it's literally in there. So questions, did my I understood what my doctor said to me. I understood what the nurse said to me. It was quiet. All of this data is compared. So you can start to really get a sense of if you have to go to the hospital, where do I go? Let me just also share, they have a tab for complications and deaths. Well, what was the complication rate? What's the death rate? All of this, especially if you have health issues, the data is there. 
take a look so that if you ever got the call for the ambulance and you have to go to a hospital, it's too late if you're in the ambulance. You have to be able to say, I want to go to hospital X yeah, and, and have that. So I want to pause and just say, hospital compare at medicare.gov. There's a lot of good information there. Take a couple of minutes to understand what your options are in your area. That's a fantastic resource. Like you said, great to learn ahead of time before you're in a crisis. Right. And it's there. So just take that time. So the next one, what I learned about medications is the FDA does a wonderful job. They need to find out, were there any adverse effects, right? You take a medication and you had a problem. All right. How many times have people said, yeah, I had an adverse event, but they don't report it. They don't know where to go. So the next one I want to let people know is it's called MedWatch, M-E-D-W-A-T-C-H. And MedWatch is from the FDA. And that's where if you have an adverse event from a medication or a device, okay, so you could also have a hip replacement or whatever, you report it because the FDA, and I know because I sit on the panels, takes that data and when there's a lot of adverse events, we then look at what's happening in the market and determine, do we need to change the labeling? Do we need to put out more warnings? But the help that we can get from all of us putting those information into MedWash is critical, critical. And I also will share if we saw your audience here and I asked for a raise of hands of how many people know about this? No one, huh? (laughs) I I don't want to say no one because there could be one listener that goes, oh, I know all about it, but it's small. And I can prove that it's small because the next site that I just want to talk about is where if you're told to go on a medication, there's another database and it's called the FARS database. The FARS database is from the FDA and it's the Adverse Events Reporting System. I'm going to spell it. It's F-A-E-R-S, Adverse Events Reporting System. It's at the FDA. You literally could Google F-A-E-R-S. Adverse Events Reporting System. And this is all of the data that comes in from MedWatch. Now, here's what I want you to know. And I'm looking at this right now as I'm speaking to you. Live data. They have for 2022, I just want to give 2022 data. They had a total of 2.3 million reports. Okay. And if you look at how many came from the public, they don't break it out. It's less than 10%. And I'm being very generous when I'm saying 10% because I can see the numbers here. So here's the message. They had 2.3 million reports. There's a bar graph and you could see it's like this much coming from the public. So where's all the data coming from? That data comes many times from manufacturers that if they find out that there was an adverse event, they have to report. How many times have we had an adverse event? And I say we, we the public, and we actually tell the manufacturer. So what can we do as a community? We can help each other by getting that data to the FDA and saying, here's what happened when I took this medication. Here's what happened when I had this hip replacement. I had this result and I want you to know so that that data can get out there. And so my message is, even though I wish all of us were healthy, I wish all of us didn't have to ever go to the hospital. Once it becomes part of our life story, there are positive things we can do to make a difference. And it's as simple as understanding there's MedWatch, I can keep track. And I know that there are listeners saying, I've had some pretty tough stuff happening from some of the stuff that I've been told to do. I'm going to report it. It's anonymous. It's easy to do. 
And I can say as someone who sits as the consumer representative at the FDA, I have seen time and time again that that data is used where we have changed the labeling on medications. And I'm proud that there's so much more. I have to be careful to say this. There's so much more we can do, but I can say that when challenged and given the opportunity, we have done many times the right thing once we had the data. That's really good to know. Some people probably just don't know about it and others might think, oh, what's the point if I send that in? They're not going to do anything, but you're saying- Red. Oh, no. And that's why I shared this these websites. You will see the data and how it's tracked. And then you're going to see how few consumers are doing this. And we need more. There was one medication that I sat on where it was through Facebook. The moms all discovered that their children were having adverse events. And it turned out that the adverse events were only for people who had a certain genetic mutation. Mm. Okay. But still, it was a bad adverse event. And it turns out if you have this genetic mutation, you shouldn't take the drug. Okay. Well, you could test for this, whatever genetic mutation was. They came to the FDA. They spoke up. Their children came. And you know what? There's a black box warning now on that drug. But if it wasn't for all of us coming together, and that's what I'm hoping I'm hoping two things from the people who have listened today. I hope we've empowered them to understand not to be afraid to ask the hard questions, to ask why, to say no. Know that you're not a data point of one, that your experience taken with everyone else's can make a difference and create change. Such good points today to use your voice for yourself and your loved one, but also in a community way of everyone's voices coming together. So definitely go beyond your own situation and add it to the database like you suggested with those sites so that we can really amplify our voices and and get real changes done. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. We all have so much more to share. We all have the right to speak up and demand what we know in our hearts is right or feel is right for us in that moment. And what I would also tell people is to keep an open mind when it comes to healing or finding solutions, because they're always changing. There's so many new things available now that weren't available 10 years ago. And I would always keep that hope that you can find healing, whatever it is you're going through. There's a solution out there somewhere. So keep an open mind and keep looking for it, whether it's through interviews like this one or books like the one you've written or on YouTube or Tony Robbins' new book called Life Force or whatever it is, just keep searching for the answers until you get the satisfaction that you've done all you can to heal yourself or a loved one. And then like you said, at that point, when you have done all you can with all the resources you have available, then don't beat yourself up over it either. When you've done everything you can, then be kind to yourself and yes. know you've done your best and not everything is going to work out perfectly, but at least, you know, you've addressed it in the best way possible. Yes, that's beautiful. So is there any last thing you want to share with the listeners that can empower them and help build that courage to do all these things, to speak up for themselves and to do the research and fill out the survey about adverse reactions and things like that? So when you're in a health crisis for yourself, for your loved one, the world is a dark place. And there was a moment when my son was in the hospital And I didn't think I'd ever see the light again. And I sat, they had a room, a meditation room. I'll never forget this. And I, the song came on the radio. It was called Smile. And the song basically says, smile, because like the sun's going to come out tomorrow. And I had to listen to that song over and over. And I didn't believe it. I, oh my God, are you kidding I got out of that room, I just said, the sun will be there tomorrow. And not that tomorrow was going to be perfect, but that I would find a way with everything that had happened, as much as it's not fair to make this our story that could bring joy to others and lessons to others and to help. 
And so because I didn't let myself stay in that dark place, and you'll hear it in your own voice, if you're blaming and accusing and all of this stuff, it might feel good, but it doesn't let the light in. And so I hope my message is the light is there, even in the small interaction of saying thank you to the nurse, of acknowledging the person who's cleaning the toilet in the hospital. And those little glimpses of light will fill you even when the world is dark. I agree with that 100%. My dad was in the hospital and he had to have the thing put down his throat to check something with his stomach. And it was so uncomfortable. We could tell my mom and I were there when they finally pulled it out. One of the first things he did was thank the nurse. And for a lot of people, that would not be the first words out of their mouth. But he goes around with that attitude of gratitude. Right. Right. The attitude of gratitude. The attitude of gratitude. And it's hard because he was in pain. Mm -hmm. But he gave the nurse a gift and he gave himself a gift. Your father exemplifies what we're talking about. And it's hard, but it's a skill that will help. Yeah. Well, this has been so enlightening to let people know that they have more power than they think they do when they go into a hospital or a doctor's office and when they're in crisis. I would imagine read your book before you're in a crisis and then use all the websites you've mentioned. And the book is on Amazon. So it's questioning protocol on Amazon. And many of them I've actually signed. So you might even end up getting a signed copy. Oh, exciting. (laughs) I've read part of it and I'm going to finish it. It's such Mm -hmm. an interesting book. So easy to read and well-written and it has so much useful information in it that I would recommend it to anyone. And like you said, even hospitals, people that work in hospitals should read that book as well. And if anyone wanted to reach out to you. I've had people reach out to me. If you want to reach out to me, I, I am Randy Oster on LinkedIn. They can just reach out that way and I will get that message. Okay, great. Thank you so much for your time and sharing your knowledge with us and everything you've learned through your own experiences. I appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome. And I thank you for the opportunity. Be sure and follow Open-Minded Healing so you'll get every new episode as soon as it's released each Tuesday. You can listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts.